Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Yesterday, Governor Phil Scott delivered his fourth annual budget address. Today, we're going to spend the hour discussing what's in that budget, what's new, what Democratic leaders might pass, what works, and what doesn't. In the second half of hour of our show, we're going to be joined by Vermont House Majority Leader Jill Krowinski. But now in our first half hour, Vermont State Auditor Doug Hoffer is uh, going to offer his take on what he heard and some of the studies that he's been doing and conversations that he's been having around the State House. Uh, Doug Hoffer, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Well, let's just begin by getting your initial response to what you heard in the governor's budget address. Well, let me go back to his state of the state. I was, uh, for myself, out of the state visiting my 96-year-old father, so I missed it, but uh, I did read it. And I mentioned that because he discussed in the state of the state uh, sort of the foundation of much of what drives him in his economic development policy. And that is this question or this assertion repeated that we are losing workers and that uh, the state's economy is at risk from the demographic change and so forth. And while that's an interesting issue and uh, can't be ignored, uh, the way it's presented is troubling to me in some ways. Uh, He said, for example, in the past 12 years, only three counties have added workers. The other 11 have lost a total of about 18,000. Well, there's two keys there. One, why did he start 12 years ago before the recession as opposed to after? And second, why is he focused on workers as opposed to jobs? Workers, by the way, for folks who don't follow this stuff, includes the self-employed, and those are not jobs in the most important sense. If you look at the period from the recession till today, you find something very different. And when you look at jobs, instead of three counties have only three counties adding workers, only four counties have lost jobs. And instead of talking about 18,000 fewer workers, we actually gained 18,000 jobs. And that is particularly noteworthy because during that period, about 15,000 Vermonters of my age court, age cohort, perhaps yours as well, baby boomers have retired. Not only did we fill all those jobs, but we added another 15,000. So I say that only because I, I question and have for a number of years questioned this 
narrative because I don't think it leads us down the right road to sensible policies. So to his budget address, not surprisingly, since this has been his uh, focus for many years or during his tenure, um, he wants to give more money away to businesses and use more money for some things that I don't think uh, uh, really deserve it. For example, he rightly said we should measure the value of every taxpayer dollar invested. But then he went and said he wants another million dollars for tourism marketing. Well, I've seen the data, and if you look at a graph of the amount of money spent annually by the state for uh, tourism and marketing uh, advertising and compare that to rooms and meals tax revenue, there is absolutely no correlation whatsoever. The rooms and meals tax revenue continues to grow as the tourism and marketing money is flat. So that's weird. Uh, But he, he wants to have it both ways, and you really can't. The other is his continuing fondness for business incentives uh, is based on the notion that we are competing with other states when, in fact, the only available data shows that the number of jobs resulting from interstate business moves is tiny. Really, what we should be doing is investing in our own state and the things that really matter, which is infrastructure, uh, workforce education and training and quality of life, um, which we do, but we should do more of. And I'm sorry, if you want to get in there, well, ahead, just uh, keep going. let's take each one of those things. So this issue of losing workers but gaining jobs, um, Governor Scott said in his budget address yesterday that the central problem, I think he called it the indisputably the central problem that our state faces is declining population and everything that results from that. So you're saying – that's really not a big problem when it comes to employment. No, I did say I think it's an important issue, but it, it does not appear that we are in a crisis. We keep filling these jobs. Now, we hear from some people that there's a challenge in finding people for particular jobs. Well, uh, Econ 101 has a very simple answer for that. Pay them. If you pay them, they will either stay, in the case of some younger folks who leave to look for work elsewhere so they can pay off their education loans, or if you're looking for a particular skill set where there are more of them in Boston or New York and so forth, then offer higher wages. I've run these numbers many times comparing the wages in Vermont for the same occupations to those in the big cities, and we are way, way behind. So higher minimum wage, for example, which the governor, I believe, is opposed to, he vetoed it last year, uh, would, from your t- uh, from what you're saying, that would be the single biggest driver of attracting and retaining No, I'm sorry. I, I didn't say the minimum wage. Okay. I so, said wages for those jobs for which employers are having difficulty finding them or filling them. Having said that, I'm not opposed to a higher minimum wage. I am the guy who... 20-some years ago, wrote the job gap study. So uh, I'm all over that, but that's not what I'm talking about here. For those employers who need people with a skill set that they can't easily find, in many cases, the answer is raise the wage. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the minimum wage. It's going to be on the table again. Um, What difference does that make? I think it makes a lot for the people who would benefit from it. I think the analysis that was done a couple of years ago uh, has been uh, used in in predictable ways. Some um, uh, highlight the fact that some jobs will be lost while ignoring the fact that tens of thousands of people will get a raise. And when they get a raise, they spend that money here for the most part, as opposed to wealthy people who do other things with their money, often not spending it here. I think the minimum wage raise is, is long overdue. 
And what about the argument made against raising the minimum wage that it results in fewer jobs that people? Well, that's what I just said. That there's no question uh, from the analysis that was done by the the Joint Fiscal Office and the legislature's economist uh, that that is in a, a likelihood. Uh, how much? Who knows? But to lose a few jobs to gain income for thousands and thousands of workers and their families, there are trade-offs to everything. Let's talk about the tourism issue that you raised. Uh, that more money to tourism has not led to a commensurate rise in uh, rooms and meals taxes, uh, if I've characterized that um, correctly. Uh, so what does lead to a rise in rooms and meals taxes? Well, th this is what is almost never discussed except by people like me and Tom Cavett, the legislature's uh, economist. The economic census is very clear. The tourism industry in Vermont is very large, and that's good. It creates a lot of jobs and brings a lot of money into the state in a variety of ways. That's good. Nobody's arguing otherwise. But big industries like tourism, particularly those who are trying to attract people from out of state and not sell a product locally, have to advertise and market what they do. And they do. Uh, according to the economic census, it's somewhere between 80 and $100 million a year. And that's not surprising. It's a huge industry. So in that context, there is no methodology available to say, to determine uh, the return on investment for the state's comparatively tiny investment. It can't be done. So, uh, you know, if this were that important and we stopped doing it altogether and, and diverted those funds or reallocated them for something else, we would find out pretty quickly if it was absolutely necessary because they would fill the gap. I don't know the answer, but that's one option. But the point is, and by the way, it hasn't been increasing. The state's uh, expenditures for that have been flat for years now. And even though we haven't been spending more, the rooms and meals tax revenues continue to climb. So that raises the question, what are we getting for this money? And I don't know the answer, and I don't think anybody can tell you the answer. So the governor saying he's putting, uh, I think he said a million dollars more towards this. You think that's, do you think it's pointless? Well, he's the one who said we should measure the value of every taxpayer dollar invested. I can't measure the value of that dollar. It can't be done. There is no methodology to do it in the context of the private sector spending 80 to 100 million. We spend 3 million, about half of that is overhead and the rest is in direct marketing and so forth. It's impossible to measure that. So what I would do is what I have urged um, policymakers to do, which is to ask two questions. One, are there any alternatives? And if so, can we measure and quantify the return on investment from those alternatives? And that, that, to me, is a no-brainer, and they should do that every time. Instead of simply saying, well, we've always funded this. How much can we afford to fund this year? That's the wrong approach, in my opinion. They should start from zero every year and insist that all the people who manage these programs come in to the extent possible with hard data on the effectiveness of those investments. And if they can't demonstrate that, then spend it on something where you know you're going to get a return. And some of those are very easy. For every million dollars, how many homes could we weatherize? How many affordable homes could we buy or incentivize? Uh, how many miles of, of fiber for broadband could we roll out? I mean, those are the questions I should be asking. Another, you have been very critical this fall in a, in a study done of the uh, Paying People to Move to Vermont initiative. Um, what's your criticism of that? Well, again, this falls into that same bucket of how do I measure its effectiveness when, in fact, we know from the survey information that uh, the Agency of Commerce got from these folks after they got the grants that many of them were coming here anyway. 
uh, a number of them said, oh, I, I was coming because my wife has a job here and we're moving. Well, that's nice, and I'm happy you're coming, and, and welcome, neighbor, but, you know, did we have to give you that money? And the answer is probably not, but in many cases, I don't know, and there's no way to determine that with any certainty. And, and again, I would ask the question, um, first of all, is this the, the most critical problem going? And, and I think even its uh, proud father, Senator Sorotkin, would say no, but he's looking around for every way he can to make a difference and add value. And I don't blame him for that, but I just think there are other investments that are sounder and more long-term. Uh, like what? Well, as I said, uh, you know, affordable housing to me is the, is the obvious candidate. And, and I know he agrees with that. In fact, hats off to him. He's, he's been trying to get an extra $50 million for that for two years, and we'll see if he can get it done. Uh, everybody agrees, the business community, the state, uh, independent analysts, uh, nonprofits, everybody knows that we need more affordable housing, period. And three things happen when you do that. First of all, you put people to work immediately building those houses. And if, you know, to those who would say, oh, that's only, you know, temporary. Well, if you commit, you know, a lot of money over the next 10 years, then people are going to be working for 10 years. Second, you get a 100-year asset, bricks and mortar or pine or whatever. Uh, and third, you, you solve a problem that is absolutely wrenching for many, many people in the state. And furthermore, you know, you know this, to the extent that we make available truly affordable housing and perpetually affordable housing, then that allows people who are not homeowners to get in. And many of the people in those homes over time build equity and can move up and it works for everybody. And the Champlain Housing Trust is a, is a perfect model of how to do it. So back to this uh, incentives, you know, paying people to move here, is there any data at this point on, you know, how many people took advantage of this, who they oh, yeah, are? They, yeah, they, they have, have that. They have that, and they know where they live. We can't say that. We, you know, we can talk about – I mean, in our report, we talked about how many in each county. That's about the level of detail we want to give because we'd like to protect their anonymity for the most part. But uh, – and not surprisingly, most of them came to Chittenden County and Washington County. And, and you know, <laughs> you know, another thing that the governor said is – and I couldn't agree more in his uh, state of the state – he expressed concern, and understandably so, about the urban-rural divide, which is not just a problem for Vermont but all states. But at the same time, you know, we have to walk the walk. Uh, back in October, the Economic Progress Council, which runs the Veggie program, the flagship uh, business incentive program, awarded $6 million to two very large, very successful companies. Where? In Chittenden County. So he had talked in the state of the state about providing tools and, and resources for at-risk towns in these rural counties. At the same time, that program is pouring money into Chittenden County. Once again, you can't really have it both ways. Hmm. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking uh, this half hour with Vermont State Auditor Doug Hoffer. Uh, you can, if you want to join this conversation, you can call us at 802-244-1777. Um, you can I have say one more thing about this generally, if, sure. if we're going to leave economic development. It's interesting because uh, in his budget address, he, like many for decades now since uh, LBJ's war on poverty, bemoaned the fact that, you know, we haven't really uh, solved the, the question of poverty. But from his angle and others, they're concerned about people who are dependent year after year and sometimes generation after generation on public assistance. And that's an important conversation that we should always have. It is interesting, however, and curious that we never have the analogous conversation about the dependence uh, of the business community on taxpayer subsidies. I think that would be an interesting conversation. And what, what would you say about that at this point? Well, it's 
it kind of raises questions about the supposed wonders of the free market if many of these companies keep coming back to taxpayers to help them and often in their uh, requests for money say that they couldn't do it without us. Well, I don't believe that. I think we've created a bunch of programs that are easy to access and big, sophisticated companies. I don't blame them. If we set up the system this way, they're going to take advantage of it. But the question is, are those long-term investments? And I would argue, no, they're not. You have been at the State House over the last week or two, and uh, I think it was a VT Digger that described you as kind of on a, a, a lonely crusade uh, going from <laughs> committee to committee, telling people they did not want to hear. Um, what's your take on it? What are you doing at the State House now, and what do you feel like the response is? Well, I was over there talking about a couple of things. One uh, was the Senate Economic Development Committee talking about the remote worker grant program, for one. I was also in Senate Finance uh, talking briefly about TIF. Uh, I also went to Government Operations to talk briefly uh, about uh, a request we have for a new position in this office because the legislature told us several years ago that we have to audit every single TIF town three times in its life cycle, and that is now taking 15 to 20 percent of our entire audit capacity. And I don't think that was their intent when they started it, so I said, hey, I need some help. So that, that's why I was over there. Today I'm going over to Ways and Means to talk some more about TIF. Okay. Tell us about TIF, and, and let's start with the basics. What is it and where is it? Okay. TIF is almost everywhere at this point growing, coming soon to a town near you. Uh, it's an old uh, approach to economic development. I think it's at least 20 years old and, like so many other things, uh, was created after the federal government stopped giving states and municipalities as much help as they had in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, it basically, it's called tax increment financing, and what they do is uh, uh, the state says to a town, if you can persuade us that you have a good plan and that your uh, approach to development includes improved infrastructure of one kind or another, whether it's the streetscape, transportation, uh, wastewater treatment, um, parking garages, well, all kinds of things. If you do that, it's your belief that you're going to attract more development or increased development in a particular defined space in your downtown, typically. That was part of the deal. If you can persuade us that you've got a good plan, then what happens is we approve the right for that town to borrow money, as they used to do on their own in years past. Towns would always ask the voters if they wanted to raise taxes to do something in town, whether it was streets or sidewalks or whatever. But in this case, what happens is they do the infrastructure improvements. And if the hoped-for development occurs, then the grand list grows. And when the grand list grows, you get more property tax revenues. So instead of just uh, you know letting the property tax revenues go wherever they were going to go, which would be to the town itself and to the state education fund, they get to retain a certain part of that to pay back the debt, the bond proceeds that they just borrowed to do these improvements. So what happens in the near term, you know, for the town, that's their business. The voters vote on it. But what happens is they're basically treating the education fund like a bank. They're saying, this is all going to work out in the end. 20 years from now, when we've paid off all of our debt, we're going to have so much more grand list and so much more property tax revenue that the portion that's going to the ed fund is going to be much bigger than it would have been, here's that special phrase, but for <laughs> this investment. And in theory, it sounds okay, but it's getting to be a big deal. And basically what's happening is that all the towns that don't have TIF, tax income refining pro uh, projects, are basically subsidizing the towns that do because there's a lot of money not going to the Ed Fund. I think it might be up to 6 or $8 million a year now. And the governor's asked in his budget address to expand that program even further. 
So, uh, you know, and in some places, uh, you know, who can argue with the desire, uh, the appropriate desire to direct development to downtowns as opposed to, you know, cornfields? That's a good idea. Uh, the question of whether to use the education fund effectively as a bank is a different question. I might argue that the state should probably just appropriate the assistance if they can get the uh, support for it. But, you know, in the old days, I live in Burlington, and for many years, successive mayors came to the voters and said, here's four things we need to do, whether it's build a new high school, fix the roads, whatever it is. Uh, do you approve uh, an increase in your property taxes to do this? And often they'd say yes and sometimes no. Well, now, because of the statewide education fund, um, some of the money that, that is paid to the town is supposed to go elsewhere, out of the town. So the creation of the education fund in 97 or what it was, Act 60, has really confused everything. And um, I'm not sure people are asking all the right questions about whether this is cost effective or not. Are you saying that, I mean, has the TIF, has TIF resulted in a net loss to the state or to the state education fund? Well, here's another one of those that I can't answer the question because uh, it's impossible to know with any certainty whether or how much of the new development would have occurred without the TIF. And furthermore, it's really interesting that uh, a number of people, including uh, a fellow uh, who I won't name, but he's a senator uh, from a TIF town who said, my goodness, you know, I look at the, the downtown and I see how much improvement there's been. Well, the fact is every major TIF town in Vermont has received enormous sums of money from other sources. For example, Milton had a combination of $9 million in state and federal aid. They also got uh, an EATI business incentive, which was the predecessor to Veggie, of $10 million for Husky. So I mean, there's just so much money flowing into these downtowns, which is a good thing, that it's impossible to say, oh, that's the result of TIF. Let alone, my fundamental question is how much of it would have happened anyway with or without the TIF. So it's a very challenging thing. And I'm not saying these people have bad intentions. They don't. We all want the same things, more and better jobs and healthy downtowns. The question is, what's the most equitable and sustainable way to finance these things? One of the things the governor's budget proposed was expanding gambling in Vermont. What do we know about gambling? And what it's it not something, yeah, to my knowledge, it's not something this office has ever looked at, and I'm not much of a gambler myself, so I can't say, but it, it seems a curious avenue for Vermont to pursue. We already have gambling and the lottery, of course, uh, which has raised a lot of money, but I, I'm guessing uh, that the research would say it's regressive, so I'm not sure it's a good thing. Um, you've also been looking into, in the last year, One Care Vermont. What are you finding? And explain what One Care Vermont is. Yeah, um, we are doing an audit right now, uh, a full-blown Gagas audit, which is more of a descriptive audit at this point, of both of Green Mountain Care Board's responsibility for oversight uh, of this new beast, uh, One Care Vermont, which is an accountable care organization, uh, which is, uh, there are a number of them around the country, I think maybe 30 states or thereabouts. Ours is a little bit different because it's entirely hospital-based, and there's no competition. There's only one. And the, the straightforward goal, I hope I get this right, is that the traditional method of paying for health care, not just paying for it, but uh, receiving health care, is rewards more tests and more uh, services. What I think is perfectly reasonable, theoretically, is to say, well, you know, that's not the only way to do this. We can try to treat the whole person, do more preventative work, 
and uh, anticipate problems down the road and end up spending less if we do it right. And we can coordinate care between a whole bunch of providers, which uh, may have been operating in silos in years past and so forth. So it sounds good. Uh, but what we have here is the creation of a massive near monopoly. Uh, this partnership basically between Dartmouth-Hitchcock and uh, the old Fletcher Allen and about 12 other hospitals. And that in concert with um, UVM Medical Center's consolidation of a bunch of hospitals and private practices raises some questions. But anyway, uh, the Green Mountain Care Board, as you know, approves hospital budgets and is also charged with overseeing the uh, One Care Vermont, this ACO. Um, and we don't have good performance data yet. I think we now finally have enough that we can do a follow-on job on the performance work itself. But what we're going to try to do is make this information about what the hell this means to lay people uh, accessible. And that should be out in about a month, maybe six weeks. We also have another smallish job going on about uh, the dramatic increases in healthcare spending in Vermont in the last 15 years. Hmm. Well, uh Auditor Doug Hoffer, this is the political season, and there is a rumor going around that you may not be running again. What can you say about that? I can say that's a rumor that's unfounded. It's funny they say that about me all the time. Nobody ever asks me, though, but thanks for asking. Uh, so I'm asking, <laughs> are you going to run again for auditor? Yes, I am. I certainly am. Yeah. Okay. So this rumor <laughs> is completely without merit. Totally without merit, yeah. Um, nice of people to think of me, though. Actually, it sounds like they're thinking of me being gone, but that's okay. <laughs> You're <laughs> suggesting this is one of those rumors that uh, follows with uh, a knock at the, your, your door in the late hours of the evening that you shouldn't answer? I have been watching The Sopranos of late, so it's, it's funny that you would say that. But yes. <laughs> and, and the mob hit is always preceded by a rumor. <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Hey, let's have a sit down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, since we've now dispensed with that rumor and uh, and confirmations that rumors of your death have been greatly exaggerated, uh, I think that covers it for now. So, uh, Auditor Doug Hoffer, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure, David. Anytime. Take care.